one of the over 10 million people at the moment uh, in the United Kingdom who are watching Downton Abbey. I've been watching it in preparation for this week to see what the viewing figures are like, and they're on average around 10.9 million people viewing Downton Abbey, either on a Sunday night or on catch-up throughout the week. Well, if you are, you will know that it is a period drama set in a big house, Downton Abbey, in Yorkshire. At the moment, I think we're around 1924 in the program itself. And this is a program that tells the stories of Lord Grantham and his family who are upstairs and the servants who are employed to make sure that the house runs effectively, their lives downstairs, and sometimes how the two of them cross over. Well, if you have been an avid fan since uh, season one, uh, you'll need to jump to season two for a second to remember a character called Ethel. Ethel was employed as uh, one of the maids to come into the house to replace Gwen. And there she is, working away. She's quite a jovial character. You can tell by the glint in her eye that she has a little bit of mischief in her. And indeed, whenever Downton Abbey is turned into a military hospital during World War I, we can see that glint becomes more than just a glint. She finds herself in the company of an army officer. She does what she shouldn't do with him one night, and she falls pregnant. The father not wanting anything to do with the child and who is subsequently then killed in battle in World War I. But what has been striking, and as it's gone into season three, is how this character of Ethel has been rejected by the people who were once her friends. Recently in the program, we've been learning a lot about this as it would have been in the culture of that time in the 1920s. You wouldn't even have gone into a house where someone like Ethel, who would, after leaving Downton Abbey, go on to be a prostitute in the streets, you wouldn't even go into the same house as them, never mind employ them or talk to them. And as some of the characters have had to interact with her, you can tell that they're a little bit nervous, worried, afraid, and trying to stay away from her. Ethel's life is not one that we would like to replicate for our own. She's lonely. She's an outcast of society. She finds it hard to make ends meet. She really has no hope in 1924 Downton Abbey. The story of Ethel and its progression throughout this season is a lot like the story that we've read this morning in John's Gospel. We've been learning a lot about Jesus introducing himself to people. That's what John desires to do. He desires to introduce Jesus to the people of his time, but also by telling the stories of how Jesus introduces himself. In our story, we have a woman who is known for her liberal ways. She's been around a bit. We later discover that she's had five husbands and she's now on number six, but he's not her husband. She's been rejected by her community. We know this because for years, if we've known this story, that's what we've been told. That's why she's out getting water under the heat of the sun, because no one else will be about, and this is her opportunity to get away from everyone. But something happens one day. 
Something happens that transforms her life in ways that she could not imagine. You see, the simple transformation is that Jesus comes and he introduces himself. He introduces who he is all about and what his purpose on earth is. In chapter 3, Christoph uh, last week uh, looked at chapter 3 and the story of Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Jesus met with Nicodemus uh, in the shadows of the evening. Nicodemus was a little bit not wanting to be anywhere near Jesus because his group of people wouldn't have liked it. But when Jesus introduces himself to Nicodemus, there's, there's something that happens in Nicodemus' life. And at the start of chapter 4, Nicodemus' pals are starting to get a little bit worried. We, we read there that the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. They thought John was going to be their problem. They thought John the Baptist was going to be the one that they were going to have to deal with. But now they're seeing that Jesus is gaining more and more in popularity. So Jesus hears this and thinks, okay, the time has come that we must go. So he leaves Jerusalem and heads back to Galilee. And in this passage, we're told that he passes through an area called Samaria. In fact, verse 4 tells us that he had to go through Samaria. And on a human level, this isn't true. He didn't have to go through Samaria. No self-respecting Jew would ever go near anything of Samaria. You would either have gone down the coastal road and up to Galilee, or you would have gone along to the east on the mountain path. You would have done whatever you could do to avoid going through Samaria. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. It wasn't that he was wanting to waste time or kill time. Jesus had a divine appointment with this woman at the well, this woman of Samaria. John is the master of detail. Throughout his, his gospel, it's there. Every little detail counts for what is the story. Here's his first to today. Jesus had to go through Samaria because he had to meet with this woman. So what's this whole deal with the Jews and with the Samaritans? Well, simply put, they hated each other. Each thought that they were better than the other. One had one way of worship and the other had the other way. The Samaritans were a group of people who had Jewish ancestry, but especially during the exile, they had gone away from what they believed and they had got involved with the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They'd become a diluted people. They had accepted other forms of religion. They had intermarried. They had, in the eyes of the Jews, given up everything that was vital uh, to be in a relationship with God. They only used the first five books of the Bible, and they believed that worship was centered around Mount Gerizim, whereas the Jews thought it was Jerusalem. And this plays out a little in the passage a little bit later. One very striking difference was their interpretation of what was to come, what was promised. The Jews recognized that a Messiah would come, and as we've thought of before, at the time of writing, they were looking for a liberator someone who would come and liberate them from the bondage of the Romans. The Samaritans, on the other hand, taking their readings from Deuteronomy, they understood that a prophet was to come, the greatest prophet of all, who would come and would help the people to live a better life, the right life, 
uh, to worship God. So here we have Jesus the Jew coming into Samaria and sitting down at this well. It's culturally wrong. Everything in this picture is wrong. He's a Jew in Samaria. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. And she's a woman who has been found in sin on many occasions. This is not the picture that should be happening here. But in this act, in this first outreach from the Jewish nation to another people group, Jesus is showing that the gospel is for the whole world because he is the savior of the whole world. Jesus is at the well. He's tired, he's thirsty, and the woman comes along. There's something we learn about her here. She should have avoided Jesus, simply because he was a man, never mind anything else. But because of the life that she had, she should not have gone near him. She should have avoided him and waited until he had gone before she went to get her water. But rather, she walks straight up and she goes to get her water. Here's a woman who has been around. She's not afraid to tackle a fight. She's not afraid to go against what are the cultural normalities. So here she is, and what a better person to meet than Jesus Christ at this well. So Jesus initiates the conversation. He says, give me something to drink. Here's a well. You have a container. Please give me something to drink. And at once the woman is startled and she actually begins to take the high moral ground on what the cultural norms are. There's a bit of irony at play here. All of a sudden she takes this higher ground. But Jesus ignores what she says and he goes straight to what he is here to offer. Living water. We have to understand that in a land such as Samaria and Judea and Galilee, all that uh, biblical Palestine, we need to understand that it is a land with high temperatures, it's hot and it's dry. The mention of water and of springs, especially new sources, are attractive ones. And Jesus has just offered her refreshment, a new source of refreshment, but in her mind it's another pool of water. Maybe another pool where she can go to so that she can avoid everyone else. But the water that Jesus offers is different. And the woman is intrigued and begins to point out the obvious. Jesus has nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. She's looking at this man, this tired and thirsty man, saying, you're absolutely bonkers on so many levels, you're completely lost. You're talking to me. I'm a Samaritan, I'm a woman, and I have a past, but I don't think you know that. Now you're asking me to give you a drink out of my cup? Jews wouldn't even allow the shadow of a Samaritan to fall on them. And here was Jesus looking to drink water out of her cup. And now he's talking about living water. It's not a bit of wonder this woman thinks she can take the higher moral ground because here at last she's found someone in her mind who she thinks is lower than her. So she takes the upper hand with the interaction with Jesus. She's been brazen in approaching him, and so she continues. 
But what Jesus wonderfully does is craft a lesson in communication for us. He has initiated the conversation. He becomes uh, one who is kind, showing kindness, one who is unjudging, one who is vulnerable. But what does Jesus not do? He doesn't compromise on the message. He blows the stereotype out of the water, but he does not compromise on what he's come to do, and that is offer living water. Jesus actually ignores what she says. She wants to take a little sidestep down the theological alley, but he sticks with his point of living water. The water that he offers only has to be drunk once, and the drinker will never be thirsty again. Jesus describes it in verse 14 as water that will become a spring of water, well, up to eternal life. In the context of this woman, who wouldn't want water that would well up into eternal life? Water that would bring her hope, not just a, a thirst quencher, but actually to bring her hope. She would never have to come out in public again. She would never have to watch the whispers as she passed by on her own in the heat of the day with her empty water jar. She wouldn't have to listen to the laughter that was coming behind her, the judgment of people standing at the doors. So it is not surprising that in verse 15 that she asks for this living water. And now Jesus begins the real work in her life. He asks her to call her husband. Jesus knows her past. He knows what's going to happen. And she honestly says she has no husband currently. And that's true. Jesus commends her for that. She has had five husbands, and the man that she is now living with is not her husband. I'm sure as you would imagine, anyone with that particular background would want to get off this topic about talking about her husbands quite quickly. And so she does. And where does she go? In her mind, she goes to the safe world of theological debate again. I wouldn't suggest that that's always the best place to go to. But she attempts to get Jesus off the topic. She attempts to bring Jesus back to where she thinks she has the higher ground. And she attempts to flatter Jesus by saying that I know that you are a prophet, but he's having none of it. And by the end of their last interchange, Jesus tells her that he is the Messiah. He says to her, forget about where to worship, because a time is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And here's another little Johnism. Throughout the Gospel of John, he uses this phrase, spirit and truth. And in this, he means that worship will, not, will happen through Jesus and that God's way of salvation will be known as the only true way. God in spirit and God in truth. This is how real worship will happen. This is how God wants his people to worship. So in all of this, Jesus has presented to this woman who he is and what he brings. And what's the result? In verse 28, we are told that the woman believes who Jesus is. She leaves her water jar. She goes back to her village to report what has happened. Think of how miraculous this is. In these days, it was the testimony of a man that was required to make something true. A woman had no voice. 
But here they are believing this woman. And not just her words, they're believing her actions because she brings them back to Jesus. And later in the passage, we discover that there is a community who come and believe in Jesus Christ. And they say they see Jesus as the Savior of the world. It really is a remarkable lesson in how to share Jesus. No fancy modern techniques, a simple conversation that revolves around the truth of who Jesus is. Did Jesus change the life of this woman, first and foremost, in her physical context? No. But what he did do was transform her. We don't know what her life was like afterwards. We can only guess that as a Christian community formed there, she was accepted and she became part of that community again, knowing forgiveness. Or that's at least what we would expect a Christian community to do. But Jesus goes straight to the heart of the issue, and that is a transformed life. This woman at the well needs to know who he is. If you have been following the passage, you'll know that we've jumped over a little bit in the middle. I'm going to take two seconds to, to talk about that, and then we'll get back to the story of the woman at the well. While all this has been happening, the disciples have been away buying food. So Jesus, we've, he's been introduced to us as thirsty. There must have been hunger as well because that's where the disciples have been. Well, the disciples come back and they see the tail end of this encounter. But John records first that they don't challenge Jesus on what's going on. They don't say anything. This is very strange because no self-respecting Jew would ever go through Samaria let alone talk to a woman on her own and a Samaritan woman at that. So they would have been in their rightful place to challenge and rebuke Jesus, but they didn't. They remained silent about this interaction. So they bring the food to Jesus and they urge him to eat. And then Jesus goes down uh, the road of a little illustration that the harvest is upon them and that it is their job to begin reaping, the reaping of the harvest. Whether Jesus is taking this moment to commission the disciples to this work or whether he is showing them that the work of his fathers to reach everyone and not just the Jews is a little bit unclear. What he does show is that Jesus' primary ministry is to do the will of God, the one who sent him. And he's given the greatest example of that in introducing himself to the Samaritan woman. So, the woman at the well. She is from another period in history. A culture that we would hardly recognize or understand. But it seems to me that as we look at her life, her core issues are the same issues that we face today. She was someone who was feeling unfulfilled. She had nothing or very little to hope for. She had tried the things of this world and she hadn't found that fulfillment. 
She hid behind her words and the smoke screens that she put up to throw Jesus off the scent of what, who she really was and what she was about. She tried to hide what Jesus already knew. Does it sound familiar? As we look at the world in which we live, as we look at the world around us, as we look at our world, the world in which we live in our lives, do we see these things? Unfulfillment, no or little hope, rejection, trying the things of the world and yet not finding them fulfilling. Long before Shrek ever gave us a great example out of his first movie, the critic James Hunnicker described life as being like an onion. He said that it's like layers. You peel it and you peel it and you peel it till you get to the very center where there's nothing and all you're left with is nothing but tears. We have been created in the image of God. We have been created for a purpose and our primary purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It should not surprise us that lottery tickets... It shouldn't surprise us that watching our televisions, it shouldn't surprise us that buying the latest new thing does not, will not, and never will fulfill us. Because we were never made to have those things fulfill us. We were made for the glory of God so that his glory would fill us. Roy Clements comments that there's a bit of the woman of Samaria in us all. We all search for fulfillment in this world. We all know that there's something better for us. And this is what it is. It's Jesus who comes to give us God's very best. In chapters 3 and 4 of John's Gospel, Jesus shows that he came to give hope for everyone. No matter who they were, he spoke in the evening to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, the educated middle class, one of those in society who was to be respected because of what he did. Jesus came for him because there was no way that Nicodemus' life could ever fulfill him. There was no way that Nicodemus' world could ever fulfill him. And then he came to the woman of Samaria rejected by Jew and Gentile alike due to her moral choices and flaws, most likely uneducated, most likely trying to eke out a living as best she can, Jesus came for her because she couldn't do it herself. And she very quickly discovered that even though she tried to fulfill herself with pleasures of the world, she was never going to be fulfilled. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Friends, Jesus desires to introduce himself to each of us. And it doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter if we have been walking with him for years or whether we have rejected him. He has come to introduce himself to each of us. There will never be a day where we will know too much. There will never be a day where God's work will have no impact in our lives. Jesus comes to introduce himself to us so that we can know God more and more. Right now, in Barista Coffee Shop down the street, there are about 12 people who are looking to know more about what it means to be a Christian in our Christianity Explored course starting this morning. We never have enough time in our Sunday morning services to, to uh, help you understand these things. We are around afterwards to talk about these things, but one of the resources that we've highlighted time and time again is the Christianity Explored website. There are these little cards sitting out in the entrance hall and also up here at the table beside the tea and coffee table. It's a link to a website, christianityexplored.org. And what it has there, it has a, a, a vault of resources for you to access at your own time and in your own thinking so that you can get help to try and understand what Jesus is all about, discover who he is. If you are interested in finding out a little bit more about Jesus, Christianity Explored is open to you next week as well. Take a card. Go on the Sunday morning, go onto the internet, or talk to us, because we would love we would love to, to do what we've learned to do, to introduce Jesus so that he can give you and show you a life that is worth living. If you have been watching Downton Abbey, you'll know that the current state of Ethel is that she is employed by Mrs. Crawley in the village. Mrs. Crawley has offered support and hope of a new life for Ethel. The woman of Samaria receives hope and life in Jesus as he introduces himself to her. Friends, no matter what our position in life, no matter what our moral credentials, Jesus still introduces himself to those who are in greatest need and to those who think that they are sorted with the things of this world. Have you met him yet? He is waiting to meet you and offer hope and salvation. The question is, will you meet with him? Because Jesus wants to bring and offer a new life that will take you from this world and into eternity. Let's pray. Our Father God, we give you thanks that you have given to us clearly the gospel. Thank you that it transforms lives in history, in the present, and it will continue to transform lives in the future. Thank you that it is changing the lives of those within your church. Thank you that you continue to draw your people to yourself so that they can be equipped and fit and ready for your purposes. 
And thank you that you are drawing people into your family. Thank you that we are welcoming people into your family because Jesus is introducing himself. May we know Jesus as he wants to be known. May we know his hope, his salvation, and may we know the security of the eternity that waits. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.